It's that time. The bell has rung. Mental punches are about to be thrown. Five, four, three, two, one. Get ready to face off with the strategies and tactics to take on the martial arts of everyday life and win. Welcome to the School of Crazy Monkeys podcast. Here's your hosts, Dr. Rodney King and Aaron Labutier. So, what's happening? Well, we're gonna we're gonna explore the very depths of of fear, right? Well, yeah, that was the plan, right? So, you know, another School of Crazy Monkey podcast, which we haven't done in like ages, partly because I've been busy traveling around the world, and you've been busy too. I have, I have, and I'm very excited about this particular topic because. Me and fear have a very close relationship. We've known each other for a long time. I feel like I have a lot to say about my friend fear. All right. Well, I want to start it off because what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of situate this idea of fear. Right. Um, hopefully uh, break down some myths about it because I think that is really helpful and important because, you know, as I talk to people and look, I was also there at one point. There's a lot of misunderstanding about fear and what fear actually is or emotions in general. So I think it's important to talk about that. Um, and I think that will help kind of like form the, the rest of the conversation because, you know, especially if we're talking about martial arts, which ultimately is what the School of Crazy Monkey is about fundamentally, obviously fear comes up a lot. Um, and if you look broader into the martial arts community, it's used quite a lot as well, right? It's used as a way for marketing and so forth. And a lot of the times the way that I see it uh, presented is more based on, you know, just kind of an idea of what people think fear is, but not actually focused on what the research is actually saying. You know, what is what what is neuroscience saying about fear? So that's kind of where I want to start. So give me like... Okay, well, I think that's, that's a good starting point. Yeah, give me a couple of kind of minutes just to try as best as I can unpack what that actually means. All right, so I think the first thing we need to do is we need to dispel this myth that emotions are somehow hardwired in the brain. You know, often you'll you hear an example, um, especially if people do know some brain science, is that the reason you're feeling fear is because your amygdala has been activated. Um, hence you basically feeling fear, right? So in that sense, if you take that kind of sentence, that's implying that fear in of itself is hardwired. It's the hardwired hypothesis, right? So, you, so you're saying the fear is not innate. Is that how you want to start the, the conversation? It's innate or not, not innate? Well, listen, let, let me go through what I want to say, and then and then then we can come back and we can we can we can bounce around with it, right? So that's that's my starting point. All right. So Look, I think it's undeniable that the amygdala is part of the human beings and, and any social mammal for that matter. It, it's, their, it's part of their threat detection system, right. right? So as such, the amygdala is wired by evolution to detect and produce body responses, you know, to the kind of threats, uh, to certain kinds of threats, but that's not required to feel fear. So... Hang on, hang on. So you want to ask me a oh, question? Oh, you're going in deep. You like straight bang into the yeah. Because I, I want to get this out of the way first, and because I think it's important, right? Okay, so let me give you an example. I will give you an example, right? 
So in studies where threatening stimuli are presented to people subliminally, right? So for example, using quick exposure or other kinds of techniques, you know, similar techniques. In the brain imaging studies, the amygdala is activated and body responses are elicited. But the participants do not have any awareness of having seen the stimulus, right? And do not report feelings of fear, which they should if the amygdala activity is what makes fear, right? So when we are faced with certain kinds of danger, defensive responses, right, like fleeing or freezing, they can co-occur with feelings of fear, not because the neural processes underlying those two kinds of events are intimately entwined in the amygdala, but rather because both events have some um, similar starting point. For example, the threatening stimuli is detected through the visual system or some other sensory system. Okay, so, but from there, the paths underlying the responses and feelings diverge. So visual connection to the amygdala triggers an innate behavioral response like feeling or freezing, but all that is needed actually to feel fear is a cognitive interpretation. So in other words, and a belief that you are in danger. So I can say this another way, right? Fear, like all emotions, are not hardwired in the brain, for example, fear, but rather constructed. So, you know, if we unpack that even further, then, then emotions are made up of ingredients, such as your bodily sensations, your life experiences and expectations, uh, the people you are with, the situation you're in. But in other words, we label emotions based on context, right? We use context. It's basically we construct that emotion. It's not some kind of mythical switch in the brain that is there is a fear switch, right? Because as, as I said about that example, right? If you show fearful images to people, but it's subliminal, they have physiological changes that we would you know, typically detect in somebody, quote unquote, being fearful, but they don't describe it as fear because they didn't see the images. Are you saying that are you saying it's an illusion? No, I'm not saying it's an illusion. I'm saying that we construct fear. Like we are the architects of our fear. Our fear, what we define as fear, is based on pretty much mostly past experience. And it's something that is built up over time all the way from when we were children. And so, for example, we know this. Some people will fear one thing and another person doesn't fear the same thing, right? Why is that? Because they've had two different experiences with that particular object. One, they've constructed this idea around fear around it. Another person hasn't. Okay, so we, we know this even kind of like intuitively. Like if we say, okay, a lion is hunting an antelope, right? We don't say that the lion hunting the antelope is afraid. We say the antelope is afraid because we intuitively know that the context is important when we're describing fear. So can I, can I summarize so I can understand what I think you've said? I think you said that you feel based on the research that you've done on, on where neuroscience is currently, which as we know, is not where it will be in the future. 
um, is that fear is not innate. You're not born with it. Although there was some research that said that all humans were born with two innate fears. And of course, you have to have some way of measuring that, right? Because as you said earlier, some people fear one thing and not another. So if you're born with this innate fear, then you'd have to figure out how each person would interpret that fear. Anyway, the fears were loud noises and heights. Those were the innate fears, which a lot of people said were passed down through an evolutionary imperative. Um, some would go further and say, why is it that people are scared of snakes? It's because you're born with an innate fear of snakes from an evolutionary imperative. But not everybody is afraid they, of snakes. They, 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 threw, they, they threw babies in with a load of snakes, obviously harmless ones, and um, like three months old. And there was, I don't think there was one case of the baby showing any interest in the snakes at all. If anything, they had a load of building blocks and those round rubber balls that you can jump into. <clears throat> they had a load of rubber balls and building blocks and things for the baby to push around and the snake. And the baby touched the snake, the ball, and, and the building blocks with the same type of curiosity and playfulness. Uh, so so th that was the interesting. So there you, so there you said that something that's very important. Why is that? Because that baby... Has no fear. It hasn't learned it. Hasn't learned that it should fear a snake. But somewhere down the line, through its experience and through culture, and you know, obviously depending on, on where that child is brought up, it learns snake equals bad. Hence, I see a snake, I'm afraid, right? I want to quote, let me quote, um, like I think one of the most preeminent researchers in this area, and mostly where I'm drawing these ideas from, is a neuroscientist. Her name is Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she said, an emotion is your brain's creation of what your bodily sensations mean in relation to what is going on around you in the world. Okay. I mean, that's that's a lovely phrase, and I think it's very um, succinct, and, and it sums that, that up very nicely. However, my experience of fear, uh, there was a few things that happened in my childhood, and I still don't understand why, if it's not innate, it happened. For example... First time uh, I went on a speedboat, I was about five or six years old and I was spending the weekend with a friend. The friend's mother had a boyfriend that had a speedboat. The moment I went into that speedboat and the moment we pulled off from the beach, I was absolutely terrified. I mean, so I now know that my amygdala just exploded and they had to go back and drop me off and they spent the next hour enjoying the speedboat to which my friend had the most amazing day of his life. I spent my time on the beach going, that was the most terrifying thing that I've ever experienced. The first time I was taken to bonfire night, same type of age and the fire was going and they let off the fireworks. My dad had to take me back home because the sound of those loud noises just absolutely terrified me. Why is it that that Buddy, the pit bull you know so well, runs into the wardrobe every time there's thunder and lightning? Why is it most dogs do that? Did, did someone teach my dog to run into the wardrobe? No, what Buddy had was experiences. This is the thing, right? He had experiences in his, in his earlier formative life, right? When he was still a puppy. Those experiences... He now equates with certain kinds of 
um, responses, right? So when he feels that physiological change happening in his body, what we call interoceptive, right? Your interoceptive awareness is your ability to look within inside yourself and be aware of the changes that are taking place inside your body, right? So for example, um, you know, oh. butterflies in your stomach, uh, clammy hands, dry mouth and so forth, right? Now, at some point in our life, and that could be either us, that we had an experience that basically freaked the living shit out of us, all right, and then got encoded, like when that situation or any similar situation like that happens, that equals bad, that equals like a bad thing, right? And then we start, as we learn emotional concepts and we learn the wordings around it, we start saying, well, when I'm feeling this way, right, and this situation happens, all right, and I make that connection, then I'm calling that fear. At the end of the day, emotions are not really reactions to the world. So you're not a passive receiver of sensory input but an active constructor of your emotions. I mean, from sensory input and past experience, your brain con constructs meaning and prescribes action. So, you know, it's not just like, you know, fear is just happening to you. There is a reason that that thing is happening to you. And there's a reason you are describing that particular emotion as fear. And that requires the ingredients of your personal experience. Now, I don't know about, you know, what might have happened beforehand about you getting on the speedboat and why that freaked you out so much. It might not necessarily have been the speedboat per se, but the idea of speed. And somewhere before that happened, you had an incident where, let's say, I'm just using an example, right? You were riding your bicycle a little bit more carelessly than you should, going down a hill that you couldn't handle. It was really, really fast. And you crashed and burned, right? And so now you start equating that speed, that idea of speed, to the physiological changes that happen at the same time, and you then label that as fear. Because we know, we know that what one person fears, for example, another person may not. And you know, of course, there there, there are objections to this, but if we just say in a general sense, if fear is hardwired, if there's some kind of mythical switch that we switch on for fear, then in principle, we should all be afraid of exactly the same things, but we're not. Okay, well, let, let me let me turn up the volume here. Let's, let's get controversial. Because what if you can be born with a ability for music as your two boys are so clearly something physical has been passed on through a combination of you and your ex-wife's dna to your children more so than just characteristics because i'm not well hey you saw the video of me singing and what happened when i showed you that video of me singing you laughed uncontrollably because it was so bad. I mean, I've never seen you laugh so much. And the, and the reason why you laughed is because you had a reference point. And your reference point was me singing and your children singing. I shouldn't say children, your young adults singing, because they have a natural ability. Now, so the first question is, did they learn that? Did they? I'm not saying that it wasn't fine-tuned, but they had something from the moment they were conceived. 
that made them better at singing than me because you can sing and your ex-wife could sing. So hang on, let, let me go through Let me go through the process. So some people have an ability to be musical and others don't. Some people have the ability to be artistic, others don't. And you yourself have said many times, some people have the ability to be naturally great martial artists because of their physical stature and the way that their muscles are made and some don't. Is it possible that I inherited, this is where it gets controversial, a memory of a loud noise, something from my ancestors that was passed on through DNA? Is it possible that I was just hardwired to be just a little bit more scared because I can tell you so many stories as a kid of being scared of anything to do with violent speed, loud noises, anything at all. Now, everybody else, when they went to the bonfire and they heard the fireworks, they found it amazing, but I was petrified. So question is, was that because I have been passed specific proteins in my DNA that mean that I am highly susceptible to fear? which I totally agree is manageable, is a construct, and can be dissolved and obliterated from your life. It takes time, but it can be. But going back to the five, six-year-old version of Aaron, was it a protein-based, double helix-based experience passed from ancestors? Was it a neurocircuitry thing that my amygdala is just a little bit more sensitive than someone else's? Or are you saying, no, 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 I'm not having any of that. There's an experience you had that you don't remember that meant that it's sparked something. Oh, let me try and answer that. Okay, first things first. All right. As far as my um, my kids, for example, being like just musical and, and so forth, I mean, they were, you know, if I'm really honest with myself, exposed to music at a very early age. For example, their aunt is a musician. Right. So every single time they went over to their aunt's house, there was always music. Right. My ex-wife actually sings really well and would do often and was at a time actually singing, you know, just like uh, independently, but like for small gigs and things like that. So that part was always there. Plus, as you know, and most people don't, you know, when I was much younger, I was in the choir for a little while until I got a beating for it. And then I decided it wasn't worth it. Right. So um <clears throat> I would say, you know, again, I think we need to make a distinction here between um, skills that people develop and emotions, because that's really what we're talking about. We, we're saying that fear is an emotion, right? Okay. Now, right. nowhere in there did I say that there wasn't a um, preconditions in the body that are designed, right, to detect threats. So coming back to what I said earlier on, right? The amygdala, as we know, is a threat detection system. It detects threats, right? That's what its job as is, is, is designed to do. Um, and so in that way, the amygdala is wired by evolution to detect and produce body responses to certain kinds of threats. But this doesn't require fear, right? When we put fear into it, when we say, I am afraid of X, is because I've constructed that experience of internal changes. And I've just, I've now come to the conclusion that when I feel those changes, 
that to me at least equals fear. And hence I'm saying, I'm afraid. Now, coming back to your question about, you know, could there have been uh, things within your DNA, kind of like genetic memory that's passed on? Well, what's the word for that, right? The, 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 the jury is still out on that because actually there is some research coming about where it's implying that there may be the fact that we are passing on if you want to call it ancestral memories, you know, from one generation to the next. So I can't answer that persuasively because, first of all, I don't know enough about it, but I know that it is actually out there. Again, you know, we talk about loud noises. We need to also understand that when we're actually still in our mother's tummy, right? Okay. What is happening to our mother and what is happening to her in her outside world and the way that she encodes experiences, I do believe that that would have an effect on us. Yep, yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely possible. Okay, all right. So, so for example, you know, there could have been experiences when you were just about to come out where you were, you know, your mother was exposed to excessive loud noises or whatever, and that just already started kind of laying that pathway. But at, but at the end of the day, just because you detect a threat, right, doesn't mean that that equals fear. It only becomes fear when you label it as such, when you now construct it as such, right? But, okay, what's the most important point and takeaway from that? I think the most important thing is, is that we are not then just kind of, um, uh, what's, what's the way to describe it? Um, Slave, slaves to the... Yeah, you know, you can change your emotions, right? You're not a slave to your emotions. It's not like, oh, because I have this particular response every single time this situation arises or similar situations, that's the other thing, right? The brain is a prediction machine. So what it does is it tries to predict what's about to happen. So it looks at similarities. So you could have, you know, five situations that make you fearful. But if you really honest with yourself and you look closer at them, there are similarities there that are, are causing that reaction and what you then determine as fear. Because in some way they have some similar um, components or at least they have some similarity in how you experience these things in your past. But you are not some kind of slave to some mythical switch in your brain, you know, a fear switch in your brain that you now will always be afraid when X happens, right? Because you can actually turn that around as many of us have, have recognized and have done. So I think I'd like to, um as we hit the whatever minute mark, I think it's time to throw some uh, Buddhist philosophy into this. Mm. So, okay. Do you think that you need fear as a survival mechanism? And we'll take a snake as an example, because some people would argue that fear is what saves you because you're fearful of the snake then it keeps you hypervigilant of the snake. So fear is a good thing. Now, I'm not, I'm personally not subscribing to this view, but I know a lot of people will say, you know what, people that say they're fearful of nothing, they're lying because everyone is fearful of something. And you know what? You need that. You need that fear because it keeps you alive. It keeps you, 
you know, whatever. Now, when you read Buddhist philosophy, actually has a very different take on the difference between having the fear of the snake and having an understanding of what the snake may do to you. So how do you feel about this concept that you need fear in your life to keep you alive from an evolutionary perspective? Well, you know, when you talk about Buddhist philosophy, actually, if you look very closely, the Buddhists also have a very similar conception to what I've just described. Buddhists also believe in a constructed view of emotions, especially if you look at Buddhist psychology. So it's actually quite, they're quite similar in that way. And in that way, they were way ahead of their times. I think what you need and what we all do is we need a working and effective threat detection system, right? So for example, the amygdala and all its associate components, right? Do you need fear in order to do something? I mean, again, if we taking you know on face value, what I'm saying is remember that I'm whatever we calling this thing as fear is I've constructed it. I mean, let me try to give another example here, right? I would make the argument that if me and you had a conversation about sadness, that we would probably, like let's say the sadness of losing somebody we loved and we were talking about it and we talked about how we're feeling. I would be pretty much 100% guaranteed. That's a lot. Okay, well, close to it. Okay, let's say 90% guaranteed, right? that me and you are going to agree on mostly what we are feeling in that moment in time. And part of the reason is, is because both you and me have been educated in a Western environment and we've come from Western cultures. And I was brought up in a British household and so were you, right? And so in that way, we would share the similarity in the understanding of what we would define as sadness, right? The way we explain it to each other. However. If I go to Tahiti and I speak to a Tahitian mm. and they just had somebody pass away Absolutely. and I could ask them talk, to talk to me about it, the way that they describe sadness will make no sense to me. Because actually, I will infer based on how they're talking that they're not actually talking about sadness. What it sounds like is that they have the flu, that they're sick because they talk about heaviness and things like that, right? Which we may not talk about at all. So even culturally speaking, across the board, there isn't this consensus that when we go to certain parts of the world, in, for example, in Tahiti, that they're not going to talk about sadness in the same way that we do. Why? Because that emotional concept for them has emerged differently based on what? How they were brought up, their culture, how they see the world. So they, const- they, constructed, they constructed a version of what you know, we would typically say, well, that would, you would be, require sadness for, but the way that they describe it isn't the same way that we describe sadness. So I think, I think that my point then is that that's very powerful, is that in, so for example, you could then practice emotions in advance of a situation by teaching your brain the most useful way to respond in a situation, right? So actors do this all the time. The emotions they feel on stage are real because they rehearsed it. So they rehearsed that creation of that emotion, right? If you speak to an actor when he's, he you know, conjures up a certain emotion and you say to him, you know, what did that feel like in that moment of time? No, that really felt like 
fear, that really felt like love, that really felt like sadness, right? How is he able to do that? Well, he's rehearsed it, right? And his emotional concepts allow him to do that because he has that experience of those, those physiological changes and what they mean to, to him or her in the past, right? So I could say, okay, here is a difficult situation. This situation is something that always trips me up, okay? And I can start rehearsing in my mind the next time that it happens, what kind of way do I want to respond to it? How am I going to describe that experience? And I've actually done that in my own life. And it has been massive, like in a positive way. I'll give you an example, right? If we're talking about being shit scared of something. Growing up as a kid, if I was at school and you were the teacher and you said, Tomorrow morning, Rodney, you've got to get up in front of the class and you have to give a speech. The next day, Rodney would not be at school. For whatever reason, public speaking, because I obviously had some bad experiences and there were situations that created that sense that this is not a good thing. I was so afraid to, to do any kind of public speaking. And then all of a sudden, you know, over time, as you know, um, you know, I started teaching martial arts and then I was on the road and I had to teach seminars, which required very in a very similar way to go in and present to people. Oftentimes people that I don't even know, right? I have no clue who they are or like we do when we go and, you know, work for different in different organizations and we have to go in and we have to present. How did I overcome that debilitating, if we want to call it what I then, you know, refer to as fear of, of, of talking, fear of giving speeches, fear of communicating with other people. Well, I, over time, and I just did this naturally, actually, but now, you know, there's science to back it up, is I would see myself there, feel what those responses are, because we can do that. That's the beautiful thing about human beings, is we can conjure up these kind of internal experiences, right, that we, you know, that we do in, in reality, we can imagine them, and then chose to define it in a different way, right? So now I recognize all those changes. They're still there, right? I still feel them before I go on stage, so to speak. But now it feels either two things. Either I feel it's more manageable because I know I can do it or I'm excited. But if you ask me as a kid, if I was ever going to be excited about talking the next day at school, there is no way in hell I would ever tell you that. So what I like about this idea and what, what, what I think is beautiful about it is that if we can construct an emotion, we can deconstruct it and we can change it and we can replace it with a new one. Well, I think that happens a lot <clears throat> at the retreat with snakes. So when I go into the jungle, as you know, I pretty much every night now around nine o'clock, I'll try and do an hour's meditation in the jungle and I'll, I'll walk through that thicket part where all the, I got bitten by the scorpion. And um, I'll, I'll sit there and it, guests always ask me about the fear of snakes when I'm doing that. Am I not scared that I'm going to walk into a snake? I'm going to walk on a snake. I'm going to see a snake. And most guests here seem to have this construct of a fear of snakes. It can only come from a narrative that is, come from watching David Attenborough or snakes, not snakes on planes, whatever the movie was when they're all asleep. Well, think about, just, just not to interrupt you, but think about, uh, I forgot which the tribe was, that Indian tribe where the whole tribe grows up with snakes right, right from the so beginning. So they have no, 
no fear of it, right? So, sure. And what I've learned is that um, I don't have a fear of snakes. So going back to what I said to you before, somebody could say, ah, oh, but that's dangerous because that means if you don't have a fear of them, then you're going to walk around and see one and then touch one and get bitten. But I have an understanding of snakes and I have a academic knowledge of snakes uh, for example, which ones are poisonous and which ones are not poisonous. That's but just but just to stop you there, when you see a snake, if I could put you in a brain scanning machine, just because you know there are potentially poisonous ones, right? Your threat detection system is engaged. You are having all the physiological responses that another person would if they saw the same snake. But if you see what you're doing, the difference is you are changing the context for yourself i don't even know that the 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 the, the imaging would be the same because i mean i just came back from the beach um 30 minutes ago and there was a snake crossing the road um crossing crawling slithering 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 or slithering slithering Slithering. Uh, (laughs) and um (laughs) i i i stopped my my motorbike in just total excitement as yeah, but that's what I'm saying. You've changed the yeah, I've context. I've changed the context. So actually somebody else would most probably slam on the brakes and turn around and the amygdala would be firing. But I think I was still like prefrontal. I, I was, wow, what type of snake is it? And how long is it? Okay, but let's say it was let's say it was a serious poisonous snake and you knew it was a serious poisonous snake and you knew it. I'd be more excited. Yeah, but but you've just said it yourself, right? You said that you have respect for the snake, meaning that you wouldn't be an idiot now and go up and want to touch it, knowing what it is. Right. So that Of course not. Exactly. Of course not. I would keep my yeah. distance. I would of course I, yeah. I would be like, oh, that's not that's not just some no. uh, golden tree snake. That's uh Malaysian pit viper. If that bumps me, uh, yeah. According to the research, you are your threat detection system is still on, and you are still having the physiological changes. Now, of course, there's a continuum, right? I mean, there's a continuum between you know what we can call, let's say, um, a yellow emergency stress situation versus an orange one versus red being the highest, right? So there's a continuum, and that continuum again is going to be largely based on the person and the, the the kind of context that they create around it, the narrative, the stories, right? So okay. how do you unlearn it? How do you learn this fear? Well, I mean, there's so many various ways out there. And again, this is, you know, beyond my area of expertise because I'm not a psychotherapist and things like that. But, you know, immersion therapy and things like that are things that people use, right? So actually getting people to actually be in with the thing that they say that they're afraid slowly, methodically over time. And, and then they actually learn to actually overcome it. I mean, a friend of ours, uh, Jacques, I'm sure if he was on the call, he could talk about it. Had was shit scared of spiders, like shit scared. And the way that he overcame it was he slowly introduced himself to spiders and understanding them better to the point of actually breeding tarantulas. So do you think a life without fear would be the ultimate goal, to be fearful of nothing? I say that because before jumping on this call, I was reading a uh, Japanese fable um, where a Japanese army entered a village and uh, told everyone to leave or they'd be killed. And everyone did because they were fearful of uh, this particular Japanese group. 
uh, samurai, whatever they were. And there was a monk. It's always a monk in these stories, right? It has to be a monk. And uh, guess where he lived? On top of the hill. Yeah, they always live on top of the hill <laughs> in a cave. And uh, the, the, the head of the, the samurai went up and said, you know, you, you're a stupid old man. Do you not fear? Do you not know that I could just pull out my, my, my dagger and poke you in the eye, um, stab you in the eye? Are you not fearful of that? And um, he kind of replied, well, I, I'm the guy that welcomes without fear being stabbed in an eye with a sword. I have no fear of that. It has no effect on me. I understand the consequences of it. I understand that it will kill me, but I'm not fearful of it. Therefore, I am free from it. So do as you will. And this whole story is a precursor to how you transition from fear to fate, mm. especially when you talk about fear as in something that's going to kill you. Well, is it the fear that's going to kill you or is it the fate of your life that was going to happen anyway? Because people always say to me, how is it, Aaron, that you know you were this fearful child, which I was, scared of so many things. When I went surfing, I was scared if the surf was too big. Um, you know yourself because you've helped me through that fear and anxiety of rolling and being you know, claustrophobic and everything else. So how is it that you, that you take all of these risks and you've you know, kind of achieved all of these things? Are you not fearful of what might go wrong if you buy a plot of land and build a hotel? You're not fearful of taking on this contract when you don't really know the consequences of it or you haven't got the sufficient knowledge to deliver it. You're not scared of the public speaking. And uh, and the answer is that excites me. That particular fear, yeah. that particular fear, and and I think that's where we have different types of fear and anxiety and panic. One fear is like a pure fear of imminent death, um, falling off a cliff, being confronted by a great white shark as you're swimming off the coast of Cape Town. That's a fear. You see the fin. And then there's an, this other narrative fear, the fear that's been put in you from religion, from education, from your parents. You don't really understand where it comes from, but you just know that, you know, you should get a job and work nine to five, save money and buy a house. And when someone says, hey, why don't you sell your house and use all of that money and travel around the world? And who knows what's going to happen? You may meet the, the love of your life. And everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, I'm fearful of the consequences of that action. And that's where I think the fate is interesting because what will happen is going to happen. You run over tomorrow by a car or not. It's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But for me, the shock, it's not about the fear of the shock, the, the fact of the matter, there's a risk. And if I was in the water with that particular shock, there's a risk of something happening. Right. And this is where we need, this is where it becomes so difficult because coming back to the question, you know, can you be quote unquote fearless? Right. I don't know if that is possible for most people just purely because from the moment we are born, we are educated into don't do this because that's going to happen. Sure. You know, if you, if you do that, then this is the consequences. So we start creating and generating these emotion concepts and we start basically, well, if I do that, then this is going to happen. That equals fear. Or if I do that, that's going to equal a different emotion, right? So we start generating these emotions from the moment we are we come out and you know parents start talking to us and as soon as we can start to understand 
you know, these ideas, then we start encoding those emotions within our internal system. A lot of it's protected. Yeah, of course it is. And but where, but where the monk is different there is that that is the idea of enlightenment, right? Is that he's been able to transcend all world all worldly concerns, right? So I'm assuming if you went to the monk and you said to him, "Do you have?" a fear of dying because that's probably one of the biggest fears for most people especially oh, yeah, in the yeah, world sure, absolutely. right yeah you'll yep. be no right i'm i'm happy to move on i mean i'm i'm i've come to the point where you know i've realized that all things are impermanent nothing is permanent so i live within impermanence right also this the idea of you uh, feeling excited about certain things is because you've done experiences in your life and it might have not started off with big things, but you've started off with little risks that, that paid off, right? And then you do another one, then it pays off. And eventually what should make you afraid doesn't, and it would to somebody else because they live a sheltered life and they refuse to ever step out of the norm for themselves. Would you say then that fear is the number one block the number one barrier in most people's lives for achieving what they really want to achieve i think fear as a concept is what people define as fear i think you know again as we keep saying one person can define one experience as fearful and another person will not so the question really is to get to the point and say you know, the only reason I'm saying I'm afraid of this is because somewhere down in, you know, in my history growing up, and it's become completely subconscious, so I don't know it anymore, has created this experience with me that whenever I feel this certain way and faced with this certain kind of experience, I label it as fear. But I actually have the opportunity to change that. I can change my relationship with my physiology. I think one way that is super powerful and has helped me to achieve success in that area specifically is mindfulness practice. Because what mindfulness practice does is allows me to be the observer of what is happening on the inside without having to attach any kind of narrative or story, right? I have an, a detached, not saying that I'm not aware of what's happening, but I'm not engaging within that experience. I'm not saying it's right, wrong, good, bad, it just is what it is, right? And so that was another thing that helped me get over my fear of public speaking was that I used that idea of being mindful just before going on stage to my advantage where I would feel all these internal changes because, you know, like I said, your threat detection system is going to go off. Your sympathetic nervous system is starting to engage itself. It realizes there's something coming up that... Uh, you know, according to the way that you're feeling, it needs to be doing that, right? But if I label it in that moment in time and I say, I don't think I can do this, I mean, there's no ways that I can stand up in front of these people and speak to them, then that becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. That becomes the, the, the fear. For example, let's say, uh, if you think about worry, like worry is a repeating thought over and over again you basically are practicing that thought and with that practice it gets easier and the and the you know experience it gets easier to the experience of that thought over time right so 
you basically are in essence practicing to worry. So you can say you could do the opposite. You can practice, you know, positive thoughts. And I don't say like as in the kind of generic Hollywood self-help positive thoughts, but you can reframe the situation or reframe their emotions and then you can get a different outcome. I mean, even with that said, right, people are very, very bad at actually labeling what is actually happening on the inside. I mean, most people go to the extremes, right? With They say it's either positive or it's negative, right? I'm either happy or I'm sad. There's no middle ground. And what we do know from research is that the people that seem to be the most happiest, if you want to call it that, or the healthiest, when we talk about emotions, is that they have emotional granularity, meaning that they are able to see a large spectrum, a continuum one side to the other, right? So I used to do this with my boys. I would be like, Tobin would come home and he'd be like, oh, I'm so freaking angry. And he would go off on his tirade. And say, okay, let's, let's just calm down for a second and take a breath. Are you actually angry or is it something else? And just go inside and say, is that anger or is it something else? And they'd sit there for a little while and he'd be like, you know, actually, you know what? It's not, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. Well, there's a difference between being frustrated and angry, right? And if I can make that distinction, if I can be able to have that emotional granularity, then that changes a lot of the way that I interact in the world. Because now not everything is black and white. Not everything is either good or bad. So, so if I understand correctly where we're at right now, is when you look at fear as a method of knowledge or learning, you're saying that it's empirical. It's not a rationalist thing. You're not born with an innate fear. So it's it, it's empiricism that delivers you the knowledge, the narrative to be fearful. So you learn it. You're a blind slate and you learn this concept because your parents tell you, television tells you, education your culture tells you. So you learn these things and of course, you know, you know, if you're living in the city, then maybe snakes are not going to pop up. Living in Jersey, there are no poisonous snakes. So that was never part of the learning process until I came to Asia. So you learn, you learn these things, right? So um, then uh, you start to worry about them. And then you start to think about the consequences of these things. And you become so fearful that it creates this loop. And I would say the thing about fear is it's very good at replicating itself and attaching itself to, to other things. So if you're fearful of one thing, then you might as well just be fearful of, of everything. And then the point, the point you get to is that it doesn't matter how fearful you are of the snake. It, if it is your fate to be bitten by the snake, then it doesn't matter how much time you spend worrying about it, you're still going to get bitten. So all of that worry was for nothing. So if you can free your mind of fear, which is a difficult question to, to know how to do that. And a lot of people always ask, okay, I have fear. I'm full of anxiety. I'm full of panic. How do I do it? And you, you mentioned What are you, but the thing is, what are you afraid of? Like name it, give me a name, oh. describe it. What exactly is that? And then that's a starting point, right? But I like you. I like your idea. The idea of, and, and I think that's a nice way to, to view, you know, existence. We, none of us know when we're going to go. 
It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow morning. It could happen anytime, right? And so you can live in the state of constant created fear and worry. It and does make no a difference, difference to the now. Still, and that's where when, it, it makes a difference to the that, now. That's where, that's where mindfulness comes in because it makes a difference to the now. And if you can live the now without fear, then for sure the next now will be a whole lot clearer and be more fragrant. Uh, yeah, more expansive. Yeah, because you're not consumed with this illusion. And I think, you know, if we go full circle to what I said right at the beginning, I mean, I think you could make the statement that fear is an illusion. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. I mean, you make it up. That means it's an illusion. Yeah, threats are real. Threats are real. The way, the way, you, the way that you perceive them Exactly. That's your decision to say, there's no way that I can do that because for sure that's going to happen and that's awful, but you don't really know. And regardless of how much time you spend worrying about it, um, it's all going to happen. However, I, 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 I would say that worrying can be a good thing. And, I, and I'll give an example of it. And I think it applies to both of us and mostly to a lot of people that are listening. So let's say you're giving a PowerPoint presentation and you're doing some public speaking and you worry about it. So you go over your PowerPoint. You realize that, oh, actually, that there's a grammar mistake there. Um, there's a spelling mistake there. And I know grammar mistakes are a gift from you to the people that subscribe. But on a professional level, right, they're not a gift. They can be, you know, awful. And from an academic perspective, sure. as we both know, you yeah. know, a comma in the wrong place in your reference list is a huge thing for your supervisor, and it's absolutely insane. But that's just the world of academia. But worrying pushes you to review in some cases. And in the review, you improve because of the worry. But I think it's a matter of of knowing how to maybe use the right word. Am I worrying really? I, it's not so much that I'm worrying, but but I, I have passion about what it is that I'm delivering. So I, I'm kind of want to make sure that, you know, I'm, that I'm not taking it for granted that it's going to go well. So I just review and then I find this and I, oh, that could give me an idea for that. And then the thing gets better. And then I deliver the next day and it's it's marginally better than if I hadn't worried was is, I mean even if that is that the right word yeah so like you know my ki my kids would come home for example let's say and they had to do something like that create a presentation and they say they would be worried about it and and then they would like you said they would go back and they would just constantly try to refine it so you're not actually worried about it no you you have to care about it yeah you're taking you're taking it seriously right and and sure. you you care about the your the output of your work you care about what kind of work you put out so that's the reason why why you actually putting the time and effort in. I want to maybe say just like, you know, because we, we we're close to the hour, just in conclusion, in no way, shape or form am I saying that emotions in of themselves, however each person defines it for themselves and what those emotions are and what are their triggers, am I saying that they are bad? Because I think all emotions are useful, right? All emotions are needed. They all have utility. All emotions have utility. That, that's what gives us the experience of being human. Took, if you took emotions out, we wouldn't know what it is to be a human being. We wouldn't have a human experience, right? So the emotion of awe at a sunset 
is a very profound emotion that can be very therapeutic. It can also change the way that you see other things, right? So all emotions are needed. It's not like they, 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 you know, there's, there's good and then there's bad emotions. And I think that's where the problem comes in a lot of times, especially in the martial arts, right? Like they make out as if certain emotions are bad and certain emotions are good when it's not the case, right? But it's how we interpret that experience. And is the way that I'm interpreting that experience, and if I'm defining it as an emotion, is it adding to the experience that I'm having in a positive way? Or is it taking away from my experience in a negative way? Is it stopping me from living the life that I want to live? Or is it allowing me to live the life that I feel is where I'm meant to go? That's really where it comes down to. And if that's the case, then the good news is, well, the fact that you feel that way and it's stopping you, it isn't a given. It's not something that will never go away unless, you know, it could never go away if you decide not to work on it. But that's the thing. You constructed it. And so you can deconstruct it and you can reconstruct a new experience, a new way of seeing it. And I think that could be a good, a good conversation the next time is how that segues into coaching and mentoring. Because I think mentoring has a, a you know a, a, a place here in helping to to overcome these anxieties and fears and and get to the root of it. I mean, where where is the root of this fear coming from? And once you realize where the root of it is, then it's a lot easier to dig it out, right? Mm, exactly. I think that's the key. And you know, and and not 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 unfortunately, but. You know, we, we spend so much of our time trying to avoid certain things. I mean, we've had lots of conversations about this. I mean, think about my childhood and the trauma that I went through and how long I didn't want to engage with that experience or think of that experience or go into the depths of my, my mind and bring it back out of the closet, right? Because it doesn't feel good. And, you know, but more and more and more, I'm I'm realizing as I get older is that when I have a certain kind of reaction to something, especially when it's just instantaneous and it doesn't work out the way that I want it to work out, right? Like maybe an argument with a partner is an example, all right? Um, obviously, initially, I don't want to admit anything. My ego kicks in. I'm like, I'm right, you're wrong, whatever. But when I sit and I'm honest and I reflect on it and I'm mindful about it and I kind of draw it back to where is this actually emerging from, I can trace many of my hangups to when I was a kid, certain experiences, and I can see how that reaction became encoded in my behavior. But now that's very powerful, right? So I can either look at it and say, well, I'm a victim and it's always going to be like that and there's nothing I can do about it. Or I can say, okay, I understand where it started. I understand what brought it about. What can I do now to change that? How can I change it? And just the knowledge of knowing where it came from, the root, as you said, is huge in making those changes. Because if I don't know where it came from, then it's very difficult to change. And that's where you, I think you're right. The next conversation can be about that is that when you have excellent mentors in your life, you know, coaches and mentors, that becomes very powerful because they can help you find those roots because your ego doesn't want to find the roots, right? The ego always wants to protect you and always wants to basically set it up that you're right. Even when you're wrong. You just come up with an acronym for our next conversation. What is it? MMP, MMP, mindfulness. No, no, mentor. No, MMMP. Yeah. Uh, mentoring. 
mindfulness, yeah. meditation, and psychedelics. MMMP, the way to overcome anxiety in your life. And that's why, just to finish off, why psychedelics are so powerful, right? Is because when you do go into it and you allow yourself to be open to the experience, it often does do what? It draws you back to the roots. Yeah, the it draws roots, you yeah. back to where things began. And sure. that opening from the unconscious or your subconscious into your consciousness, you know, you, you can go either way with it. You can be completely terrified about it, or you can see it as here is the opportunity for change. There you go. MMMMMMP. <laughs> All right, cool. Good one, man. And then hopefully we can do it again soon and see what uh, kind of feedback we get on it. Okay, great. Nice chatting as always. Until the next episode, get out there and spread some crazy monkey magic. For more information on all things Crazy Monkey, head over to theschoolofcrazymonkey.com.